Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian border-related and immigration issues. I'm Stephen Murens. On December 19, 2019, the Supreme Court of Canada issued its decision in Canada Minister of Citizenship and Immigration v. Vavilov. Now, we have referenced this decision and this case numerous times in previous Borderlines episodes, of course, before the decision was released, and that uh, Vavilov would be a landmark decision on the principle of standard of review in Canadian administrative law. This episode is divided into two parts. The first part is an interview that I did with Robert Denay, currently a lawyer with the province of British Columbia, but when we did the interview, he was a lawyer in private practice. He's also one of the co-hosts of the Canadian legal podcast Stereo Decisis, which I encourage you to check out if you haven't heard of it before. I have excerpted that interview here as Robert provided an excellent summary of what standard of review means. And some listeners have said that this was the best description of the standard of review that they have ever heard and that they finally get the concept. After, Diana Okanachov and I discussed the immigration law implications of the decision in Vavilov and what the new test or some of the new principles uh, of what reasonableness is and what standard of review will mean going forward uh, means for Canadian immigration law. Now, if you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. If there are any topics that you would like discuss, you can email me at stephen.murens at larley.com. That's Stephen with a V dot M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S at larley.com, L-A-R-L-E-E dot C-O-M. I hope you enjoy. What is, when we, what is an administrative tribunal? Well, uh, I mean, setting aside the specific word tribunal, um, because, you know, some things, uh, some decision makers are called tribunals, others are called something else, a board and a minister um, in the in. But in the general sense, uh, an administrative uh, decision maker is one that is um, exercising. Uh, public power, yeah, um, in in usually uh, power that is uh, conferred upon them by statute. Um, there are also prerogative powers, but they are a much sort of smaller component of the overall administrative state. Yeah, and so it's government. It's government actors who make decisions where their ability to do so derives from a law passed by parliament or the legislature or whatever. Is that generally a speaking, short summary? So in the immigration context, it'd be the immig- everything from the whether a Canada Border Services Agency officer lets you into the country to whether the Immigration and Refugee Board decides to deport an immigrant. In this Supreme Court of Canada decision, it was whether the Workers' Compensation Board decides to fine uh, this company. And so that's when an administrative tribunal is so when what is judicial review of those decisions so judicial review as a general concept is the legal proceeding in a court where judges uh, have the opportunity to as the name suggests review whether decisions by some administrative decision maker or other um, are lawful and as a general proposition any person that's affected by a decision by an administrative decision maker can go to court and ask a judge to review the lawfulness of the decision that affected them. And so then this gets into standard of review. So what what does standard of review mean? So this is one of the most uh, elusive concepts in uh, all of law, perhaps, certainly in administrative law. Um, And I also teach a course at uh, the University of British Columbia, um, Canadian Public Law, which is the, all the students, uh, as a general matter, tend to be um, foreign trained lawyers uh, who want to be accredited in Canada. And so they have to take a number of required courses. And uh, Canadian Public Law um, satisfies a couple 
level of requirements. And so I have to teach the standard of review amongst other topics to these foreign trained lawyers. And it's one of those concepts that really causes confusion, um, even among trained lawyers uh, from other jurisdictions. Um, And certainly, I think, also among many uh, lawyers in, in Canada as well. So the analogy that I came up with, which is uh, about as facile as you can get um, to explaining uh, what different standards of review are, um, is, is doing it by illustration. So uh, I'll say as it, the, the, what it really is, is how um, closely the courts will scrutinize uh, the decision of an administrative tribunal in a particular case. But uh, so you could have a, a deferential standard or a non-deferential standard of review. So with respect to the, so the analogy that I give with respect to a uh, a non sorry a deferential standard of review is uh, I I take my students to a website that I found where a woman so I think she's a blogger of some kind uh, she as an experiment decided to let her uh, three or four year old son choose all of her clothes for a week and she took pictures every day of of, of the results which were uh, as amusing as you can imagine um, and she recounts sort of how it went each day and along the way no matter how weird or uh, contrasting the colors were or the styles among the shoes and the pants and, and skirts and whatnot were she would she would wear it because she had kind of committed to do so but there were uh, on at least one occasion uh, she overruled her son uh, her son's choice and when for example I think he offered her uh, a shirt and shoes but no pants um, or or anything covering sort of the lower half of her body and she said no and you know that that is an that that is not an, a, a reasonable uh, uh, choice for you so I'm gonna tell you that you have to you have to pick something else that does include something for my legs um, and it's up to you to decide what that is and so that would be an example of someone employing a very deferential standard of review to a decision maker um, and it's it's not it's kind of not coincidental that that's a very paternalistic way of thinking about it because you know you have the mother who does know and has her own opinion about what's right and wrong and might think that the decisions being made are uh, out- outrageous but she's going to let them go because she's she's you know decision making authority has been given to the son and and there it shall rest unless he goes bananas. Um, so that's the analogy for a deferential standard of review. Uh, a non-deferential standard of review would be the example I give is uh, if if I go out for dinner with my wife um, and I suggest a restaurant, um, she will review that decision on a non-deferential standard. <laughs> yeah. And only if, if it's the one that she wants to go to as well, if, if it's a choice that she would also have made, will will the decision stand, as it were. Um, and, and so she gives me no deference when it comes to choosing the restaurant. Um, and so, you know, applying it back to judicial review, uh, if the standard of review is a deferential one, and we now have one standard of review that's deferential and it's called reasonableness um, and if it's that standard then it's as though it's it's the mother with the toddler um, reviewing the the administrative tribunal um, and if it's the non-deferential standard which is correctness then it's it's like my wife reviewing my uh, my, my decision on dinner and so who determines in the case of say that toddler where reasonableness ends won't isn't it possible that different mothers would have different definitions of what is reasonable? Of course. And so, I mean, this gets at, I mean, reasonableness is, is a concept that exists throughout Canadian yeah. law and, uh, and, and something that I think is, it's supposed to be an objective standard, meaning yeah. that it's not specific to the, 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 the idiosyncratic views of any one person. But that, of course, is a fiction. Um, and it's a, it's a necessary fiction that we have in our law, but it, it's a fiction nonetheless, because I think reasonableness, like uh, beauty, yeah. is in the eye of the beholder. And, yeah. and that's how you can find a situation where you'll have a, uh, some administrative decision that'll go up through the courts, be reviewed by, let's say, 15 different judges, and you'll have uh, you know a split of nine to six over whether the decision was reasonable or not. Yeah. And that, if, if that 
uh, if reasonableness truly was an objective standard that you know you could come and measure something with a ruler and say is it is it greater or less than ten centimeters? Yeah. Then that would be an objective standard. But reasonableness in administrative law is not like that. Um, so. What we are speaking on today is the Vavilov decision, which we have referenced numerous times in previous podcasts about standard of review. We have spliced in, and listeners would have already heard, spliced in audio from a different podcast uh, that I recorded with Robert Denay about what standard of review is. That podcast segment that we inserted ended with a brief discussion that the Supreme Court was going to revisit how standard of review works in administrative law. And the Vavilov decision has now come out. And Deanna and I have each had the chance to argue the decision before court. But Deanna, what were your initial thoughts when you read Vavilov? And what we're going to do, we're going to each give initial thoughts and then just go through the decision. Because it does have big, well, may, we'll see what Deanna thinks. I think it will have big implications. Um, so, I mean, I talked about this a little bit in a podcast we aired quite some time ago. Um, it was the one where, where Peter and I sat down with Mr. Justice Diner. And I've always uh, had a fairly sarcastic attitude towards standard of review jurisprudence because it's sort of standard of review for me is kind of a bit of a lawyer's game where there's a ton of time and attention spent to debating standard of review. Should there be deference paid to the decision of um, the first instance decision maker or should there be no deference? And there's so much case law. But I always have found that regardless of what test was being applied, essentially what ended up happening is that the court would apply whatever standard was going with the test that they felt was applicable, but what it actually meant in real practice uh, was something entirely different. And I think that the recording that we spliced in really spoke to that. So whether or not they said that they were applying a reasonableness standard or a correctness standard based on the jurisprudence, I kind of feel like the judge would then apply that standard in, a, in such a way that they would get to the decision that they felt was the right decision. So what I feel like from Vavilov is when I read it, um, it didn't really strike me that there was a big change. Um, but then when I started writing memoranda, and I've written several memoranda for federal courts since the decision came down, is that it does simplify things in the sense that we're not arguing about which test is going to apply, because at least it simplifies that. Um, pretty much we're dealing with... Um, unless you're going to rely on one of these very limited exceptions, then you're dealing with reasonableness. So at least I'm not spending pages and pages arguing, is this reasonableness or is this correctness? Um, it's just, okay, we're dealing with reasonableness for the most part. And how should that reasonableness standard apply? So again, my standard of review section has gone from sometimes a page to one paragraph. Um, so in that sense, it's, uh, it does seem like a pretty major change. But I also would say that actually standing up in court and arguing decisions, I find that there's quite a bit in the Vavilov decision to my surprise that I find quite useful. And so to that extent, I think um, that there are some really good things that we can glean from the decision. And I think as we go through the decision itself, I can speak to more specifics about why I think that there are useful pieces there for litigators. Um, but I think that's my that's my my quick and dirty summary um, to begin with, and I'll pass it over to Steve to give us his his impression. Yeah, that was my general takeaway. Also, I never really, in memorandum of argument, got much into whether it was reasonableness or correctness. Um, and generally, unless it was procedural fairness, just accepted that it would be reasonableness. What I found in Vavilov, and maybe this you'll agree with this way of characterizing it, is that there are thousands and thousands of sentences, but there's about five to ten that for immigration litigators leap out as being new ways to address or frame the reasonableness standard in litigation. 
And so with that in mind, I think uh, we have in front of us or on our computer screens a piece that Audrey Macklin and Tony Navanlian, sorry about the pronunciation, uh, who were interveners at Vavilov for the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers, provided a nine-page summary of Vavilov. And I think what we will do is just go through it, starting with the scope of deference. So maybe, Deanna, do you want to just hit off uh, part one of the Vavilov discussion on the new framework for scope of deference? Um, sure. Um, so um, bear with me one sec. Um, so essentially, the the scope of deference um, begins with the presumption that the deference should be paid to decision makers who are making administrative decisions. So, um, so, so that's the starting point. That there um, no longer is this requirement to establish that the decision maker has a certain amount of expertise. That that presumption is kind of there um, just by the fact that they have been conferred the responsibility to make that decision. Um, and um, and essentially that's that's kind of the starting point that that goes into the standard of review analysis. Um, I'm not sure if that's 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 what you want me to cover, Steve. Yeah. If you have anything to add, I think to the this. only uh, thing that I would add there is on the expertise point, and it's too bad Peter's a judge now and can't offer his opinions on this because I don't know if he gets independent opinions anymore. But he hmm. um, he used to always comment that it drove him nuts that the same standard of review and deference level would apply to someone at the Atomic Energy Agency as to a summer student immigration officer. Mm -hmm. and he was somewhat hopeful that Vavilov might address different levels of deference. Um, and it, the court did not go that way at all and said the same level, that, as you said, expertise is not a requirement uh, or a factor that gets assessed in whether the standard of review is reasonableness, correctness, or how much deference to apply. Agreed. And I think that the advantage of simplifying this is it does make the task of doing the assessment easier. Whether it makes it fairer is another thing altogether. But I think, yeah. um, as I said from the outset, the exercise of figuring out what standard should apply is certainly easier. but again, and I think this is part of what went into arguing the case in the first place, is um, I think it goes to the question of of whether or not that's uh, a an intelligent way of going about it, given the fact that, particularly for those who do practice in this area, we often do see decisions that seem so bizarre um, that we do want to bring into question the expertise of, of the decision maker, um, as, as Steve has has mentioned. Uh, but again, that's sort of that's off the table now as part of what's going to go into the analysis. Yeah. Um, moving on to part two. When when does reasonableness not apply? And the court, this majority, established a four except or. The court established a few exceptions where the reasonableness standard would not apply. The first, and this was the new exception that divided the majority and the minority on the court, what was the biggest divide was the issue of statutory appeals. So where a statute provides a right of appeal to a court from an administrative decision, uh, correctness will apply on questions of law and palpable and overriding error on questions of fact. And it's, this is a major change from the Dumbsware framework. In the immigration context, it likely applies, from what I've been reading, to certified questions that go to the Federal Court of Appeal. So whereas previously it was un, a little, the Federal Court of Appeal appeared uncertain itself as to whether there, when there was a certified question 
what standard of review it should be applying. Uh, most people that I've been reading about Vavilov uh, seem to think, and we'll have to see if the Federal Court of Appeal agrees, that there will be yes or no questions uh, when the federal court, well, yes or no answers when the federal court certifies a question of general importance. Yeah. That's very interesting. The second exception is where there is a legislative standard of review. This doesn't occur in the immigration context, but if a statute says correctness applies as the standard of review, then the correctness standard will apply. The third is where the rule of law requires a correctness review. So what that means is questions of law of central importance to the legal system as a whole, uh, constitutional issues, and jurisdictional boundaries between two or more administrative bodies. Now, questions of law of central importance to the legal system as a whole doesn't mean a very important issue in immigration law. Um, it's much broader and something that goes kind of into those constitutional issues or something to the general rule of law as a whole. And the Supreme Court went out of its way to say that persistent discord within administrative decision-making body is not a basis for abandoning the reasonableness standard. Now, they do have comments on how reasonableness will be applied there, um, but, and this was something you were talking about earlier it's um well it's one of the frustrating parts of immigration law is there are big areas of discord where a lot does seem to depend on who the decision maker is mm -hmm. this is actually my biggest disappointment with the Vavilov decision if i'm allowed to have a disappointment is that persistent discord uh you know it's almost this is a point that they really grappled with and uh, you can tell that they went back and forth as to whether or not they should carve out a further exception on the question of persistent discord and there is some very interesting verbiage around this point and you can see that they they offer some comments here that i've used since in, in pleadings before the court where it says that, that, that judges should, where they see persistent discord, um, try to really offer guidance to uh, the, the decision makers to make sure that that discord can be rectified, that it doesn't change the standard of review, but it kind of almost infers that they should be perhaps making more direction to the administrative decision maker to resolve those issues on an ongoing basis to reconcile those issues but not to the extent of changing the standard of review so i would have liked to see the court go further because we do often in the immigration setting see that there is persistent discord that isn't being reconciled there are many many examples of this but there's also sometimes problems where the persistent discord happens um, in parallel cases um, where a single applicant doesn't even have the ability to show that that discord is there because that um, information is not within their own file and the courts are bound to decide each decision on their own merits. So it's an unfortunate thing because it does sometimes in my view mean that the decision makers are kind of Im immunized against a more holistic um, look at at the decision-making that they're doing on an ongoing basis. And it kind of means that a lot of the cost of trying to get these incorrect decisions rectified is being borne by the applicant, even though there might be a systemic issue that's underlying it all. So anyways, that's my little rant on that topic, but um, but that's where the court came down. Yeah, no, that, uh, that's been a big frustration as well. And it is interesting. I felt like and I, we're going to get into it now, that almost all of the reasonableness analysis that the court did in restructuring what they call a more robust reasonableness standard was to try to address this concern without introducing a new standard of review. Yes. And the court seemed to phrase, actually, all of the much of the reasonableness standard is now 
focused on trying to get away from this issue of whether you're in the immigration context, whether your immigration application will be approved will depend on who you got. Mm. Yes. So let's get into, and we can even just start going through the CARL worksheet on the guideline on uh, the new guidance on reasonableness. Um, and the, there's the usual language that appeared from Dunsmuir still exists, that reasons have to be transparent, intelligible, and justifiable. And the first, um, the first helpful thing that I noted was the movement away from the notion that some people had argued, which was whether, which was that the reasons themselves didn't matter if the decision was ultimately reasonable. And this, I remember litigating cases immediately after a previous decision called Newfoundland Nurses, where the Department of Justice was arguing, look, as long as, uh, regardless of how insufficient these reasons are, if the judge would could have reached the same decision, then the decision was reasonable. And the court in Vavala very firmly said that that is not how the reasonableness standard works. In fact, they say that that you have to go to the actual reasons in doing the reasonableness assessment, that everything emanates from the reasons. So I think for litigators, this is a very powerful tool because in, in my view, it means the reasons need to hold together in some yeah. cohesive, incoherent way. They're not married to the, even if the outcome appears correct, if the reasons are a mess, then there's something to be litigated. Um, so I agree with you entirely, Steve, and this is something that I, I did argue um, and successfully since the Vavilov decision came down, is that if you can't tie together a rational, intelligible, logical string um, that we're, we are moving away from that Newfoundland nurse's um, logic of saying that um, you got to give the visa office a break and say, look, they're busy people, and as long as it's good enough, then you know, then you have to show deference. Um, if you can show leaps in logic, if you can show that this actually doesn't make sense, um, that that that's something that should be brought to the attention of the court, and that is a reviewable uh, error. Yeah, and um, they. Do the court also noted that uh, it's important in looking at the reasons to um, understand the history and context of the proceedings? So in the immigration context as well, I know there was a little bit of discussion as to, I believe there's a section in Vavilov that talks about uh, the reasons have to be made available to the person affected and bodies can't just rely on internal decisions and internal notes that aren't made public. That some mm -hmm. immigration practitioners were wondering, well, is this the end of GCMS since mm. those aren't made public? But I did some digging because I was debating using this argument until I realized and going all the way back to the Baker decision uh, where the Supreme Court said that notes that are available through access to information requests or judicial proceedings are in fact notes that are then okay. available to the applicant. So uh, if anyone else read uh, that line about notes have to be available and can't just be internal, I don't... Don't think, get excited. Yeah, I mean, we'll see if someone argues it, but okay. I don't think that this case, that Vavilov will ultimately be the end of uh, the internal reasons for refusal. Right. So what is an unreasonable decision? Um, the, first, uh, the first category, um, as Deanna was mentioning, is where there's a failure of internal rationality. And this is actually how the Carl paper divides it, where it's internal rationality and not is category one, not justified in light of legal or factual constraints is category two. 
So I'll read each bullet point, and I'm just going to read the Carl summary on which I'll make uh, available um, on a website as well. Is that a reasons that so bullet point one reasons that simply repeat statutory language, summarize arguments made, and then state a conclusion will rarely be reasonable. So I was relieved to see that because often you see in immigration dis refusals, I have reviewed all the, uh, I have reviewed the factors. I don't believe this person will leave. And there's no chain of analysis at all. I'm sure you've seen tons of refusals that you've had to litigate with a similar flow. Absolutely. Yeah. The second set of uh, will be reasons that fail to reveal a rational chain of analysis or where it's based on an irrational chain of analysis. So for just an example, we judicially reviewed a temporary resident visa refusal once where the sentence said, I am not satisfied that the applicant's 10-year history of traveling to and from his country demonstrates a period of traveling to and from his country. And you just read it and you went, well, this makes no sense. So that's an example of a rational chain of an irrational chain of analysis um, where a person reading the record could not understand how that decision was reached. And the final one is if there are clear logical fallacies such as circular reasoning, false dilemmas, unfounded generalizations or absurd premises. Um, I can't think of any examples off the like of a refusal off the top of my head where well unfounded generalizations i mean the one that gets me is still where they say applicant is a single and young and therefore yeah. highly mobile is one that you generally see i think it's an unfounded generalization mm -hmm. i don't know if uh pre-vavilov the courts at least some justices seem to not think that that was a big generalization it'll be interesting to see post-vavilov uh, whether this explicit caution by the Supreme Court to avoid generalization impacts things. Well, I often see decisions where it says because the standard of living is so much higher in Canada than it is in China or the Philippines that um, this creates an overstate risk. Yeah. Um, it's also the very basis upon which we rely in order to recruit <laughs> people to Canada. So I've used that um, as a basis for saying that that's an unfounded generalization and it's an absurd premise because were that not to be the case, then our entire temporary form worker program would fall down. Yeah. Um, Same with the study permits. Not clear why they would attend school in Vancouver when there are closer schools to country of origin. Right. Um, so hopefully as a result of Vavilov, there'll be more nuanced uh, decisions. Although as also has been reported, it seems like AI is going to be increasingly making decisions. But that's probably a topic for a whole other podcast. And what is mm. the reasonableness standard as applied to a computer? I mean, uh, I don't think any of this is new. I mean, there these principles are all stated in various other judgments. I just feel like they've now been distilled into one place. But um, I think that these principles are all there. And, you know, I've argued each and every one of these, but they've just all been compiled into one place. So it's kind of tidy in that respect. It just and one it makes place it that a happens to be the Supreme Court. Yes, which is nice. Um, yeah. It's nice. Yeah. And this is the part, too, that we're coming up on the factual and legal elements that will constrain mm -hmm. reasonableness. And this is where I thought that there was some new ground broken, um, or at least grounds that may have been implied but are now explicit. So the first is the governing statutory scheme. So if the, the legislation does not... Uh, the, the legislation can restrict what is or isn't reasonable. I think that's always been obvious. Um, but the other, the one that I thought was interesting was, and it is where a decision deviates from uh, established common law, international law, or statutory law and jurisprudence. So the majority in Vavilov says if a decision maker 
reaches a decision that is contrary to federal court jurisprudence, they have to explain why they are deviating. And I think that is a subtle change in that before you could argue that a decision was contrary to jurisprudence and it might be unreasonable, now it puts almost more of an onus, it seems, on the officer that if counsel are going to, especially if counsel are going to cite cases, um, the officers have to explain why they aren't following them. Yeah, I see this whole section is kind of put it finding a place for those things that we used to call jurisdictional issues. And we used to try and argue those jurisdictional issues as being subject to the correctness standard. And I think it's trying to find a place for them as being still within the reasonableness standard, but uh, but having their own place within the reasonableness analysis. So for example, if somebody was doing an agency analysis before, like, and by that I mean an analysis as to whether or not somebody has humanitarian and compassionate grounds to make an application, and they start talking about the cost of such and such a thing, um, that, in my view, would be a jurisdictional issue because since when does an agency analysis encompass looking at the cost of this compassion on the state? So I think that that's, again, where it's finding a place for it, that it's looking at what the limitations are on the power extended by Section 25 of the Act to exercise humanitarian and compassionate discretion, and have they gone beyond the bounds of that discretion? Formally, that would have been looked at potentially um, if you were looking, if somebody were generously applying the standard of review under the the pre-Vavilov jurisprudence, they might say, well, that's a clear jurisdictional issue and it's mixed fact and law and all this kind of stuff. And I think it should be reviewed on the standard of correctness. I think that's kind of what they're trying to capture here. Yeah. And it makes me, I mean, I'm curious to see how the court, how the federal court ultimately interprets this. If counsel include case law, Will there be an explicit requirement, as Vavilov seems to suggest, to for the officer to address those cases? If so, what level of analysis of the case law is required? And also, if so, it will be interesting to see how that shifts general decision-making, because these officers are only going to see cases that are favorable to applicants. Mm-hmm. They're going to get a very one-sided summary of the case law thrown at them constantly. Um, I I certainly doubt that they will require them to do that kind of level of legal analysis. I think the one thing that stuck around, I think, from the Newfoundland nurses type jurisprudence is that I don't think they're expected to necessarily conduct you know, I think the language they used is something like this is not supposed to be a treasure hunt for legal errors. Uh, So I think they're still going to caution against that. It's just whether or not in reality, or in the analysis, whether they have stayed within the proper confines of the discretion that was afforded to them by law. And if they have still stayed within the proper ambit, then they're going to be okay. But if they've, if they've, if they've strayed, from within those con- those proper constraints that I think they're going to be reined back in. Yeah, I'm not sure. It'll be, well, we'll see how the federal court uh, rules. I haven't seen, certainly, at least on the solicitor side, if I do stumble, if I think there's a case that will especially support a decision, whereas before I may not have included it, I may just to have that extra argument if needed, um, because it also raises like, Suppose there is a duty to assess cases. Is it only cases that counsel put forward? Is it cases that just exist? Um, something that I'm sure someone's arguing, probably probably That's arguing just... right now, and we'll see the uh, decisions as they come out. Yeah. Uh, the next bullet point is evidence and facts of which the decision maker may take notice. Um, this just reaffirms the general rule that uh, a decision maker has to understand the evidence before it um and that's 
you know, that kind of just flows also from whether the decision is rational. The submission of the parties. So, you know, I guess immigration officers are going to have to read uh, immigration lawyer cover letters again. Um, and that's actually something that I did argue in my recent case. And it was one of the reasons why we succeeded is that they said that there was insufficient uh, recognition of the evidence that was before the decision maker following Vavilov. Yeah. I had a JR settle once where the visa officer didn't realize that there were a bunch of documents that were enclosed behind a cover letter. Mm. And when DOJ settled the matter, they said, by the way, tell that lawyer next time to not include important documents behind their cover letter. <laughs> and instead, yeah. So uh, it really drove home at least one possible <laughs> uh, takeaway on the value of the cover letters. But in light of Avalov, um, and just general, you'd hope that everything's getting read. Well, I think that. The backdrop to this is that what often gets argued or what often was argued previously was that there was a presumption that the officer had read everything in the file. And so great deference was given to the decision maker because even if they hadn't mentioned everything in the file, they were presumed to have read and considered that thing. So I was trying to argue that Vavilov says that if the decision is sufficiently uh, straying from the evidence and if it's impossible to reconcile the decision with the evidence that was there that even with that presumption that the court needs to find that they hadn't properly considered the evidence and that is actually where the court came down so I just kind of wonder how much uh, the Department of Justice will continue to argue and to rely on that presumption or if it's going to kind of push the push the needle in the other direction and perhaps maybe even lead to more consents where the decision is just so inconsistent with the evidence that they won't make you try and argue that case every time. Because sometimes I mean, it's just so patent. In the case that we argued on, or that I argued on Monday, what was sort of interesting, one of many things that was interesting about it was the certified tribunal record contained draft refusal reasons um, that had gone through, you know, in Word, they have review, you can review other people's comments. Wow. And one of the comments in the draft refusal was like a, close to the start of the decision, make sure you add sentence saying you reviewed everything. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> we didn't know, it didn't, wasn't material at all to the judicial review because um, oh. it was clear that the officer had reviewed everything, but uh, yeah. it, it was funny to just see that inserted as a comment from someone else saying, hey, please make sure you add this sentence. Yes. Um, like that the person had amazing qualifications, but the person, the decision maker said, well, we don't believe that she's sufficiently qualified. But it was just impossible to to figure out how you could come to that conclusion with the evidence that was provided. So even that sentence couldn't have saved the decision based on this reasoning. So that's what yeah. we argued, and that's what the judge ultimately found, uh, Mr. Justice Barnes. Yeah, and the next bullet point, past practices and decisions, um, is where a decision maker does depart from longstanding practices or established internal authority, kind of like with the uh, judicial uh, cases that I dis that mentioned earlier, the officer bears the justificatory burden of explaining that departure in its decision. And I just pulled open Vavilov to get the exact site that I thought was of the most interesting part to me was, so quote, for example, the reviewing court might consider the evidence before the decision maker, the submission of the parties, publicly available policies or guidelines that inform the decision maker's work and past decisions of the relevant body and that they then have the need to explain why they're deviating. And this, to me anyway, signals a big, a, the importance of the operational guidelines. Mm -hmm. So the, the guidelines seem to be treated differently by different federal court judges. 
um, as does the IRCC website as to whether it's certainly not legally binding, but how easy it should be for officers to just ignore uh, the IRCC website. And this decision says that the guide, or to me anyways, would say that an officer now, it's confirmed or affirmed that an officer has an obligation to explain why they have um, departed from the guidelines, where that wasn't as clear or consistent before. Yeah, I agree with you, Steve. This does strike me as being the most sort of groundbreaking component of the decision. Um, as it was, uh, like at, at paragraph 131, this is what's quoted in the Carl brief, is that they say, in this sense, the legitimate expectations of the parties help to determine both whether reasons are required and what those reasons must explain. And I feel like legitimate expectations is this idea that's being chipped away at so completely and over such a long period of time that it's come to almost nothing. Uh, the idea that it feels a little bit like it's experiencing a revival in the Vavilov decision. Uh, yeah. People are entitled to expect something, that they're, expect, they're, they're entitled to expect reasons and reasons that will give them some kind of uh, an explanation for why they're found to fall short of their requirements does feel a bit like a breath of fresh air. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I wish that they would bring the one big thing that's missing is the bringing of the internal reasons to the refusal letters, because it is crazy that people have to do access to Information Act requests or judicial review to learn why their application was refused. Because those things, I mean, if you're going to do an access to information request, you've already missed your timeline for judicial review in most, in, in a lot of cases, especially right now, given how long it's taken to reply for the department to apply, reply to most access to information requests. Yeah. Getting the gumption up to file a judicial review application, particularly for applicants overseas, uh, they're costly and they're intimidating. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with you, Steve, for sure. Yeah, um, I think that's about it on Ravala. Oh, and the impact, well, as you mentioned, the impact of the decision and their person's expectations will greatly, you know, will also dictate the amount of deference that will be shown um, and how lengthy the reasons need to be. Mm-hmm. So I guess the, the takeaway, I mean, I, I've just like, it's five five to 10 sentences out of the lengthy decision that I think have significance for immigration practitioners, mm-hmm. possibly less depending on how the federal court ultimately <laughs> interprets some of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the it will be very interesting to see. My big hope is that the, uh, the guidelines and the website become much more important. The only thing I want to add is about the impact of the decision on the affected individual. I I struggle with this one because I I totally appreciate that when you're talking about a refugee claimant or somebody who's in Canada filing an agency, there's no doubt that they have particularly harsh consequences. But I find it challenging to minimize the impact of somebody who's applying for a work, a study permit, a visitor visa um, overseas. those ones are always considered to be at the low end of the spectrum when it comes to their procedural rights because they're outside of Canada, they have no right of entry and all this kind of stuff. But when you're talking about somebody of limited means who's put a lot of time and money into making an application where their only means to challenge that decision is through judicial review, I feel like those are high stakes, um, especially when they're coming to attend an important event that they now are going to miss, like the wedding, the funeral of somebody in their family. I don't know. Uh, to me, it doesn't rank high on the court's list of what are important stakes. And I think that the amount of um, of leeway that administrative decision makers are provided in providing in, in offering less than adequate decisions and less than adequate reasons, to me, it just rubs me the wrong way. Um, anyways, that's my thing. Um, 
And what I've been finding lately too is that often you judicially review a decision, uh, you get a consent after perfecting the leave application, you go to great lengths to do that, it goes back to the visa office and it gets refused again on equally absurd grounds. And I've yeah. done many applications where I've had to appear twice in the same application. And again, it's going to be reviewed on the individual merits of that application and deemed to be on the low end of the spectrum of procedural fairness. And um, yeah, I, I, I just, you know, I think that that has to be looked at more holistically. Well, and it's interesting because that standard of procedural fairness being on the low end of the expectation was has been created by people who've probably never been denied a visa or been told <laughs> you're not allowed to travel somewhere yes. uh, in their entire lives. So I think if they met, had the opportunity to meet people who had been denied that opportunity, they'd realize how devastating it can be for someone. Yeah. And I think that very few, in the grand scheme of things, very few people have the ability to challenge those decisions. So I, I, I shudder to think of how many erroneous decisions just sit on the books and never get challenged. So, Well, that's my theory behind the internal reasons for refusal is that yes. if everyone saw it, let's suppose that, I don't know, 30% of decisions are unreasonable. If yeah. everyone saw those reasons, they'd have 30 judicial reviews. But if only 10% of people will bother challenging something that they don't have the full reasons for and they just have a vague checklist, then it's down to three instead of 30. Yes. Uh, is the cynical way of looking at why it's set it up that way. And but, I look at my own practice, and because I do a lot of challenging of visa office decisions on work, study, visitor applications, and my success rate is extremely high because um, so many of them just fall apart. Um, as soon as you've taken a look at the reasons, uh, I do have a very sarcastic attitude towards giving a lot of deference to those and treating those as having uh, a very low level of procedural fairness owed. Yeah. The costs are not insignificant in um, in even just making the application in the first place, particularly when you're talking about people applying from developing countries or, you know, um, or for, for low-skilled jobs and all of that sort of thing. So. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, anyways, I think that's it for Vavilov. It's exciting to see what Skype will bring to the, <laughs> yeah. the podcast in 2020. I feel like this is totally. a real game changer. Yeah. Um, and of course, also uh, Peter will be Peter will be missed, and we've Very lost much. Peter Edelman and gained Skype. And I'm yes. sure he's listening right now. So uh, yeah. Hey Peter, we found Skype. Yes, we um, found Skype. We miss you, and <laughs> we wish you all the best. We know you're going to be amazing. Yeah. All right. Yeah, he's joined uh, the Supreme Court, so uh, yeah, people. Uh, I think I think the bench will be. Uh, it's their game. Yeah, they. Uh, he's going to do uh, cases in French, from what I hear. So, mm -hmm. awesome. Well, have a good weekend, and uh, yeah, we'll touch base soon. Yes. Cool. Bye.